Given an offer was on the table from Manchester City, why did Declan Rice choose Arsenal? Gabriel's injury on international duty, not thought to be serious. Pepe finally completes his move to Trabzonspor. We'll do the Gareth Southgate debate and we'll discuss Hansi Flick's sacking at the helm of the German national team. What does that mean for our man, Kai Havertz? All of that and more on this edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. I'm Martin Tyler. And you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back along to another live edition of the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. We are back after a couple of days off. It was uh, the weekend, of course. And given it was an international break, I figured that we take a couple of days off, recharge those batteries. Uh, decided that it was wise to do my daughter's second birthday party as well on Saturday, where there was no football, even though it's a little bit early in terms of when her actual birthday is, rather than try and squeeze it into a weekend where there was Premier League football. I can tell you it wasn't my wife's first choice uh, to do the birthday about a week and a half early, but hey, it had to happen. It had to happen. The alternative was on the day of the Everton game. Not a chance. Um, I'm back and uh, looking forward to getting back with you guys in terms of uh, regular content. As I say, a couple of days off. Uh, much needed, although I always I always feel this. Whenever I slow down or try to slow down, try to take it easy, try to kind of recharge those batteries, I'm not feeling more tired. I don't know why that is, but it, it just seems to happen to me. Uh, back into the swing of things today was down at the 90 Min studio uh, earlier on recording the first episode of our Welcome to World Class series for this year. It's a fantastic bit of content. There's lots of questions, lots of debate, lots of discussion, lots of back and forth between myself, Scott Saunders, Grizz Khan, and of course, uh, the brilliant Jacob Coleshaw. Um, and uh, yeah, we're going to be in the studio every day by Friday this week uh, producing this content. So head over to the 90 Min YouTube channel and check it out. Expertly hosted as well, I have to say, uh, by the brilliant Mr. Saunders. Um, Good afternoon to AJ, who says, uh, afternoon, Harry. Uh, can't wait for Sunday. Big game against Everton. Every game's a big game when you're trying to compete with Manchester City, isn't it? Uh, Mafia Boss is with us in the chat as well. We've got Adair, who's with us, who says, oi, cheers uh, from BK to Harry and the Chronicles fam. Uh, Louis Robson, uh, not long got back from work, says, hope your day's been good. It's not been bad, thank you. Um, Evan Hood says, uh, good News on Gabriel that made me feel better this morning. We're going to get into all of that and more. Remember, we're going to be talking Gabriel's injury uh, after he had to come off uh, in the game against Bolivia with a problem. We'll also dive into Declan Rice's interview with Channel 4 in which he revealed what it was about Arsenal uh, that convinced him. What was the deciding factor? Because we know that Manchester City were in the race to sign him as well. And I'm sure there would have been others. Bayern Munich were reported to have had an interest in him as well. And people used to say at the time, well, Bayern Munich can't afford 100 million. Well, they pretty much spend that on Harry Kane. Uh, we'll also, I guess, wrap up the Nicolas Pepe chat because he has left the club now on a permanent deal. His contract was terminated by Arsenal Football Club. He wasn't the first, but I do feel like he could be one of the last in terms of those contract terminations. We'll also reflect briefly on England's draw with Ukraine, in which Alexander Zinchenko scored. And you could see the pride on his face, couldn't you, when he wheeled away in celebration. We'll also uh, discuss Hansi Flick's sacking by Germany less than a year before the European Championships, because that could have a knock-on effect on our man, of course, Kai Havertz, who's been tasked with leading the line. Uh, for this German side under Hansi Flick uh, on plenty of occasions. We'll also round off the show by taking some of your questions and thoughts. Uh, just a quick one before we move on. Uh, our members podcast, which will be coming out tomorrow, is going to be based solely around you guys' questions. So if you wouldn't mind, when you finish watching the stream or if you're listening to this on audio, uh, pop over to the YouTube channel. Um, click on this video, which is titled Declan Rice on why he chose Arsenal, Gabriel injury latest, etc., etc., and go into the comment section. Don't do it live now during the show because those comments are not retrievable for me later on um, without me playing the whole chat replay thing. So it's easier for me if you wait until the show is over, pop into the comment section, put a little cue at the start and leave me a question. 
Um, and we'll, we'll build our members show around those questions. And that will be out for you guys around about tomorrow evening time. Um, so, yeah, check it out. Get involved. Uh, you know how much I enjoy and appreciate you guys' interaction. But anyway, that's enough uh, of the teeing up. Let's get right into the thick of it. And we're going to start with Gabrielle. Big Gabby, is he fit? What's the diagnosis? I remember waking up to the news just the other day that Gabriel had picked up an injury for Brazil. I think it was on Saturday morning and thinking to myself, FFS, like this guy never gets to play for Brazil. You know, he had, I think, an opportunity before. And if I remember correctly, it was around the time his child was born and he decided, you know, that would take precedent and, and take priority, which it should, of course. Um, and Along comes another opportunity. Off he goes. I was worried about the fact that they were playing Bolivia anyway, because there's a lot of sides in South Africa that South Africa, South America, I beg your pardon, that are notoriously physical. Bolivia are one of them. Peru are the other one that comes to mind when I think of that. Uruguay, too. They can be quite nasty in that sense as well. And I looked at Brazil's fixtures. I'm like, Bolivia, Peru. Great. Somebody's going to get kicked. Somebody's going to get kicked real, real bad. And it was the timing was awful because Gabriel had come back into the side for the game against Manchester United. Zinchenko returned to the team as well. And we saw the shape sort of shift closer to something like what we saw last season, which we were all sort of crying out for for a number of weeks. So then this idea of him going away on international duty, finally getting his opportunity to represent the Selassau, putting on the famous yellow shirt only to then pick up an injury, go off injured was disappointing from Gabby's perspective, but one that would have been really frustrating for for us Arsenal fans because you felt like that could mean he's out for a period of time. Just when we got back to what was working well, the system that we all uh, love and adore, you know, had he gone again, had he sort of hit a brick wall and had he hit a bit of a snag and a bit of a problem that was going to set us as a team back. I just remember being so annoyed about it on Saturday and, I think Tom Canton in a WhatsApp group that we're in with with some others said something along the lines of, look, I think it was just an impact injury. Uh, I think it should be okay, which it calmed me down a little bit, but you're still thinking, you know, bloody hell, what rotten luck. Since then, reports have emerged. News has emerged from Brazil that Gabriel did undergo a scan uh, whilst with the Brazilian national team and that no significant injury was identified, which backs up uh, the shout that it was just an impact injury. He is trained. He's back in training with the side and is expected, according to reports in Brazil, to start their game versus Peru. Now, it's not the ideal fixture, given what I've just told you about Peru and, and what we know they can be and how physical they can be. But obviously, the positive to take out of this is that if Gabby is fit enough to A, train and B, be involved, then clearly... It was just an impact injury. It is something that they've been able to deal with and manage. And it shouldn't be a problem for him ahead of our trip to Goodison Park, a place that we've been really bad at in recent seasons uh, this weekend. So, yeah, fingers crossed that there's nothing more to talk about on this and that Gabby returns back from international duty in as good a condition as possible and is available, fit and ready to play against Everton on Sunday. So that's positive, I guess. Um, let's see um, what uh, you guys uh, are saying on this. Evan says, uh, would you want Gabby to start for Brazil on Tuesday? Some will say get him minutes, but he needs to heal. Well, it depends on the injury, doesn't it? In terms of minutes, he hasn't had that many at the start of this season. So I'm not against him playing minutes. But obviously, if there is a risk of him aggravating whatever injury is that he picked up, however serious or non-serious, then I'm going to be concerned. And I'd rather he takes that risk when playing for Arsenal rather than uh, the Brazilian national team, because for me, there's no affiliation. But I always say this about Brazilian players, and I always used to say this about Gabriel Jesus as well. We can sit here and we can say, look, it's club over country every single day of the week, but there is something special about representing the Brazilian national team. It is something that all of these young men growing up would have aspired to do. And the connection that they have with the national team, the pride that they feel when they wear that shirt is something really, really special. And it's a hard line to toe as a manager because 
You don't want your players taking risks. You want your players fit and available for you. You want them in the best possible shape and condition for you. But you also don't want to deny them from a morale perspective, the opportunity to do something that they've dreamed of in a lot of cases all of their lives. So it is really, really difficult from a manager's perspective. Um, there's a really cool question um, from Django in the chat, uh, which we'll come on to a little bit later on. Um, for those of you that don't know, at the moment, right now, in fact, uh, the Gooners pod is still going strong on their what? 21st, 22nd hour of their 27-hour podathon uh, to raise money for Gooners versus Cancer. Make sure you go over there and check that out. Mike Feinberg is doing an unreal job uh, with all of his um, podcast uh, crew. Uh, they're all jumping in and out, and they've had some incredible guests on over the last sort of 20, 21 hours or so. Uh, Mike very, very kindly knowing what a big hero he is of mine and knowing obviously the line of work that I'm currently in um, put me in the same hour as Peter Drury, the GOAT. And it was unbelievable to speak to him. Um, it got to pick his brains, uh, got to ask him a few questions about commentary. Um, he's, he's just an all-round brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, Django's question about how it was uh, picking his brains. We'll do that a little bit later on in this show, so don't go anywhere. We'll talk a little bit about Peter Drury too. Let me just make a note on my uh, note so I don't forget that uh, as we uh, work our way through the show. But yeah, look, Big Gabby um, likely to play for Brazil against Peru, which is good news in one sense, slightly concerning on the other. But yeah, you know, I'd rather he was fit to take part then not fit because then I'd really be worried. But anyway, look, let's take a short pause and then we're going to talk Declan Rice. Don't forget to leave a like on the video, subscribe, all the rest of it. You know the drill by now. Uh, we're going to be back in a sec and we're going to talk Declan Rice. Why did he choose Arsenal over everybody else? Welcome back to the Chronicles of a Guna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. A uh, big hello to Derek Symes as well, who's joining us uh, from Australia. Says, G'day. Hope you are well, my friend. Okay, let's do it. Declan Rice then uh, has been speaking to Channel 4. He sat down with Joe Cole, um, obviously someone who also uh, really did, um, you know, make his name at West Ham United and then eventually moved on um, to, uh, West Ham fans won't like me saying this, but bigger and better things in the sense of moving to a side that could compete for the big trophies. Joe Cole did that. He'll know exactly what it's like for somebody like Declan Rice moving away from West Ham to a London rival as well. And it would have been even harder for Joe Cole because the rivalry between West Ham and Chelsea is, is far bigger, I would say, um, than the rivalry between Arsenal and West Ham United. But even still, there are fans online. And I know, look, online fans in terms of, and when I say online fans, I don't mean people that support the club from afar. To be clear, what I mean is people that are literally hiding behind fake avatars and wanting to have a go at people and, and, and sort of abuse people because they know that they can do it free from consequence, given that their identity is unknown, location is unknown and all the rest of it. Lots and lots of people who claim to be West Ham United fans and hide behind these types of accounts have been getting onto Declan Rice's back because of the things he's been saying since he joined Arsenal, because he's talked about sort of really wanting to be here because he's talked about the differences in terms of how he's been asked to play at Arsenal, what he's learning, how the level's gone up, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is massively unfair for a player that was a brilliant servant to them, led them to a first trophy in God knows how long, a European trophy as well, never publicly made any fuss about the fact that he wanted to move on, just sat back in the shadows and let it play out between the two football clubs. He was respectful, I thought, throughout the process, which can't be said of every pro uh, in years gone by that's wanted a move away and a move to what they deem as a bigger and better club. So fair play to Declan Rice. I, I don't think there's any reason for anybody out there, West Ham fan or not, to be disappointed in Rice. I don't think there's any reason for him to be disrespected. And every time I listen to him speak, yeah, I'm... I'm buzzing by the fact that he's so invested in Arsenal and that he really does believe this was the move for him and, and that he's excited about what's to come in the future. 
But I also think he always goes out of his way to make an effort when it comes to referring back to West Ham. He, he said in this particular interview that he regularly speaks to the guys. He talked about how difficult it was to leave the club and leave the people uh, involved in the club. He also mentioned that at the start of the season, he sent a message to David Moyes, wishing West Ham luck for the season and all the rest of it. The guy's a class act, whatever way you want to look at it. Um, but the big headline I take away from this interview was with regards to the reason that he chose Arsenal. And I've already referenced to it a couple of times uh, at the beginning of this podcast, but he was asked about what it was that convinced him Arsenal was the place. Why Arsenal? Because we know, OK, in the end, they pulled out. They didn't go any further in their offer because I think they got the impression, um, you know, that Arsenal was where he wanted to go. I think that's um, that was clear, I think, throughout the process. You know, if if they really, really wanted to go bigger Manchester City, everybody knows they could have financially anyway. That wouldn't have been a problem for Pep Guardiola's side. But I think as they tried to progress negotiations with West Ham, you know, they wanted to get in there because time was running out. They wanted to make sure that they were in the race. They wanted to make sure that they were in the conversation. But at the same time, they would have been feeling things out from the player side. They would have been trying to figure out whether it was worth going to the trouble and worth pushing that bit further. Because for a club like Manchester City to go in for someone like Declan Rice, to get to the point where your bid is accepted and then have him turn around and say, listen, guys, I want to go to Arsenal would be quite embarrassing. And I think that was partly why Manchester City just sort of slowly stepped away in terms of they just didn't follow it up with another offer. Um, you know, they didn't follow up that interest. They didn't really rubber stamp it. They were quite happy to, once they realised that the player only wanted the Arsenal move, they were quite happy to kind of just back off without really saying anything um, and just allow Arsenal to accelerate forward in the deal and get that done. As far as City were concerned, and I've heard this from uh, people sort of working in and around the transfer as well, Manchester City didn't concede because they don't rate Declan Rice or disappear when it came to the negotiations because they don't have a huge admiration for Declan Rice. It was because they didn't feel that they had his buy-in, which is important and is ultimately why Arsenal were able to buy themselves that extra time to find that resolution with West Ham United as a football club and get that deal done. So why Arsenal, Declan Rice was asked, and he didn't even hesitate. He just said the manager, you know, Mikel Arteta, from the first day I met him, he said, I loved the way he talked. And I trusted him to be the one to take my career on, to be the one that looks after the next stage of my development. He was also asked about the difference between West Ham and Arsenal. And he said, I'm having to play a more advanced role rather than defending in a low block and playing on the counter attack more often than not. So Declan Rice acknowledging the fact that since joining Arsenal, where the expectation is different, where the game model is different, he has had to change his game. And I think that explains why, although I'd say overall he's been very good for Arsenal so far, I don't think we've seen him at his brilliant best yet. I think we've seen glimpses of it. But I've always said that it's going to take Declan Rice a little bit of time to figure out what he needs to change. And, and listen, old habits die hard. You know, if you're used to doing something, i.e. playing a specific pass or dropping into a particular area of the pitch, and that becomes second nature to you, it's very difficult to shake those habits off. And and I'm not going to say correct them because there's different ways of playing. There's no right or wrong. But it becomes difficult to shake those and, and recondition and retrain yourself. That takes time. That takes discipline. I'm certain that he's got the discipline to do that. And um, and I'm sure Arteta is going to give him the time to do it as well. Another really, really interesting takeaway from that interview uh, was with regards to a question put to him about who the standout players are in his area of the park, in his position. Who does he look at and think they are the benchmark? And he mentioned uh, Chuameni. Uh, he mentioned uh, Rodri. That was the first one that came to mind. And you know, we've been on the receiving end of Rodri. We know uh, what a good player he is and, and how much he can impact games, how key he is, of course, uh, to uh, Manchester City's game model. But Declan Rice chose to volunteer another name, a name already associated with Arsenal, a player who currently plies his trade and trains with Declan Rice on a daily basis at London Coney. And he highlighted Jorginho. Now, this is the thing with Jorginho, right? 
often I find myself getting into debates with people about Jorginho. Is he good enough? What is it that he brings to the team? Why did Arsenal go and sign him? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, you know, he should never have got a move to Chelsea. It was just Maurizio Sarri's thing. And no other manager managed to use him in the right way or or, or no other manager rated him, I should say, to the point where he was a regular fixture in the side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I've, I've always disagreed with that stuff about Jorginho because I think he's a really, really good player. And there's obviously something there that makes him appeal to managers. And Declan Rice has seen something on the training pitch that has convinced him of Jorginho's class, his value to the squad. And Declan Rice even went as far as saying, there are things from his game that I'm trying to take and add into my game. So he's so impressed with him in training every day, his intelligence and seeing the way his brain works. He says he knows when to release the ball. He knows when to drop in pockets of space. He knows how to create space for himself so that it seems like he's got plenty of time in possession. So that was a big takeaway, I thought, from that interview, because often I think I have this conversation with Arsenal fans who look at him and go, well, he's a bit slow. He isn't the most physical, et cetera, et cetera. So what is it that's so special about Jorginho? Well, there you have it from a 100 million pound midfielder. Jorginho is a very, very valuable asset to this side. And when you think about what we paid for him, it's just... Yeah, it's crazy that we were able to get him for that money, albeit on a short-term contract, but he's seen as a short-term solution. But if in that time he can bring experience to the camp, he can bring competent backup, which is something that we've lacked in midfield for such a long time. And also he brings you a very particular skill set that you can use in certain games. I think we've seen him come off the bench at times and just bring some controlling games where we've maybe allowed the game to become a little bit frantic, a little bit end-to-end, a little bit loose. And we're at risk as a consequence and as a result of that, of not picking up the result that we probably deserve and want. So I think Jorginho has a very specific skill set that Mikel Arteta values, but also it's the -the off-the-pitch stuff as well. And when you hear players like Declan Rice reinforcing, A, what a good player he is, and B, what he brings to the squad, I think... Um, that's obviously really, really positive. Right, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to round up the Pepe chat. You know, we've been speaking about him for about a week or so as this move was in the pipeline. Let's draw a line under it. But we've got to talk about the fact that Arsenal have had to terminate yet another contract. That after the break. But before we go to the break, like, subscribe, share. Uh, You know the drill by now. I'll see you guys in just a moment. Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. Let's do Nicolas Pepe, who completed his move to Trabzonspor uh, at the end of last week. The club didn't officially announce it, our end anyway, until uh, over the weekend. Nicolas Pepe leaves, having joined Arsenal for a record at the time, £72 million in total. And it's fair to say that the transfer didn't really work out. Now, I'm not going to go into that again. Because, um, you know, we've we've been there, done that. It's been an ongoing discussion debate for years, right? Why hasn't Nicolas Pepe worked out at Arsenal? Is he a good footballer? Is he not? Blah, 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 blah. What I did see come to sort of emergence over the past few days when we all knew that that deal was done was a big old debate again about this idea of terminating contracts. I said at the top of the show that he wasn't the first, but he could be one of the last. And and the reason I say that is because he's clearly part of a group of players that were here prior to Mikel Arteta's arrival. And Mikel Arteta hasn't really found any value for, uh, any room for in his side. And therefore the feeling is, well, let's just get them out at all costs. And I think there was an acceptance on KSE's part that we needed to go again with a blank canvas. That means losing money, uh, forfeiting money that, you know, maybe in an ideal world you don't want to by paying people off and, and all the rest of it. But I think with with a deal like the Nicolas Pepe one, and of course, the, the details, the finer details of this will not be out in the public domain. But I would be very, very surprised if there isn't or there wasn't some kind of compromise found in terms of, yeah, look, you've got a year left on your deal. If you want to go now, you want to get out of it because you're not going to play any football this season. Let's come to some sort of compromise. I don't know. For example, we pay you for half of the year that you're owed uh, based on the contract. We meet in the middle and we 
go our separate ways. You get to join Trabs on Spore. There's no transfer fee involved as a result of that between the two football clubs. Therefore, you have a greater chance of achieving a signing on fee as you're going as a free agent because we've terminated your contract, all the rest of it. And it works for everybody. Nicolas Pepe will probably pocket a portion of the money that he would have lost um, in that scenario in the shape of a signing on fee. So everybody kind of wins, right? Arsenal save a bit. Pepe's not really left out of pocket. But even if he is a bit, he gets to go and continue his footballing career, which has hit a speed bump. And, you know, and, you know, it, it is is struggling at the moment. Lots of people were complaining about the fact that the contract was terminated in the way it was. And that old debate came up again. Arsenal are terrible sellers. How do we fix it? This is the type of deal. This is the type of thing that only reinforces that opinion that perhaps other clubs have of our ability to sell players effectively. And I'll always say this to people that say that. You can't sell something or somebody if nobody is willing to pay. We had the entire summer and not a single club came in with an offer for Nicolas Pepe. The only clubs that would have made a financial offer for Nicolas Pepe were based in Saudi Arabia. And it was clear from the off that Nicolas Pepe himself had no interest in making that move. Therefore, what do you do? It's like I've got an old banger of a car sitting on my driveway, right, which is going to be collected by a scrap company tomorrow. Now, in my head, that car could be worth 10 grand. But if someone's only going to come and pay £100 for it, that's all it's worth. Because you can have in your head a valuation and a price. But unless someone's actually going to meet that, then what does that valuation even actually mean? And the answer is nothing. So stop getting caught up in the fact that we didn't achieve any money for Nicolas Pepe. Arsenal would have known going into the summer that there was a strong possibility they were going to have to terminate Nicolas Pepe's contract. They're not silly. They're not stupid. They know how the land lays. They understand the landscape and they were willing to do that. If they weren't, he would still be an Arsenal player right now. But it was clear there was a desire on both sides of this to break free of one another, for him to continue his career and, and of course, uh, for Arsenal to be rid of his substantial wage. Now, I read some people reporting his wages as as high as £200,000 a week. I can tell you categorically that that is way off the mark. Nicolas Pepe was on a big wage in excess of £100,000 a week from what I understand, but it was nowhere near the £200,000 mark. If I had to guess, I'd say it was between £130,000, £140,000, somewhere in that region, which is obviously big, big money. And it will be helpful for Arsenal, the fact that they've been able to get that off the wage bill. But this idea that he was on 200 plus uh, K per week is is one of nonsense. Um, so, yeah, look, as I say, you can't you can't change the fact that someone's not going to buy it. Uh, someone's not willing to pay for the player, particularly because he's injured at the moment as well. It wasn't like we could have used him um, up until January to put him in the shop window, maybe in cup competitions, et cetera, et cetera. There's no chance of that. Nicolas Pepe is a not fit and b his value has decreased dramatically. And when when clubs out there know that someone is not a part of your plans, they're not going to come and show their hand early on in the window. They're not going to come and make you a, a, an offer that you feel is, is fair because they'll know and be well aware that if they hold tight, there's a chance they could pick him up for free, just like Trabzonspor have done. And I actually think Nicolas Pepe would do quite well in Turkey. And genuinely, I, I wish him all the best. Right, uh, we're going to talk England's draw with Ukraine and the Gareth Southgate debate, which continues to rage on in the aftermath of England dropping a couple of points uh, in that one. We're also going to discuss Hansi Flick sacking as the German boss. What does that mean for our man, Kai Havertz? Will he continue to lead the line for the German national team or does change in the dugout mean change up front as well? We'll get into all of that in just a moment. Welcome back to the show. Right, England were held to a 1-1 draw by Ukraine uh, over the weekend. Alexander Zinchenko, our very own, uh, scoring Ukraine's goal to put them in front. Carl Walker equalised for England and the game ended up fizzling out into a 1-1 draw, which was a big result and a positive result for Ukraine, but not one uh, that England fans have been too happy with 
in the uh, past few days. England, of course, in action again tomorrow in a friendly against Scotland, which should be quite tasty, actually, given that Scotland are in pretty good form at this moment in time. But of course, every time England fail to win a game, even when they do win a game, to be honest, the Gareth Southgate debate comes to the fore. Um, he's not good enough, say people uh, watching on from their armchairs. But I would ask this, in comparison to who? Because I think the very, very best managers in the pomp of their careers prefer club football. I think that Gareth Southgate has done well in terms of taking England to a World Cup semi-final, followed by the final of a European Championships, and then what, a quarter-final uh, of a World Cup? No England manager since 1966 has won a major trophy with this nation. Not one. So to sit there and say that Gareth Southgate is super incompetent and is the sole reason why England aren't winning anything, to me, is madness. Does he make questionable decisions? Yes. We'll talk about Maguire and Henderson being in the starting lineup in just a moment. But overall, he's done a good job for England. Is he too conservative? I guess that is something that you could um, level at him. I, I wouldn't be against that point of view. But what I would say is, I just think the guy gets such a rough ride and it's so unnecessary. You know, football fans are fickle. I mean, I remember for years, England were nowhere near winning a tournament. He's taken them to a final, to a semi-final. Um, okay, it didn't go their way. He didn't get the rub of the green, et cetera, et cetera. But to, to sort of sit there and say he's England's worst ever manager is a load of nonsense. I don't agree with the team that he selects. I don't agree with the players he includes. I think he's chosen to build around some of the wrong players. I agree with all of that stuff. Um, but the personal attacks on Gareth Southgate or this notion that he is punching well above his weight is a nonsense. He's raised the expectation levels around England, which I didn't even think was possible given the expectation that's always been around them because of the quality of players they've always had. He's allowed England fans to dream. And I think he deserves, if not blind support for that, and blind loyalty, at least a bit more respect than what he gets. Harry Maguire shouldn't be anywhere near that team. And I think that he has got to decide who is going to be the centre-half alongside Jordan Stones and stick with that. From an Arsenal perspective, I can't understand for the life of me why Ben White is not in the conversation. We don't know what happened at the World Cup. Ben White left early, etc., etc. People were asked to sort of respect his privacy. Don't know what happened there. From a purely footballing perspective, Ben White should be in that side. Um, Maguire shouldn't be. Always thought that Maguire was overrated in terms of what people said he could do with the ball at his feet. I think he looks slow. I think he's indecisive. And I think he's just nowhere near at his best. And I know that a lot of that is because of probably the mental burden that he's carrying with the criticism that he gets. And I understand that. But I think that's where it's on Gareth Southgate as well to take him out of the firing line and stop creating and causing this debate every single time England take to the field. The other surprise inclusion for me was Jordan Henderson, which goes back to the point that I made about maybe you could say England are too conservative. Do you need to play that midfield? Is there not room for a Madison infield or a Foden um, in, in that type of position? I certainly think there is, um, particularly against opponents of the level of Ukraine. Listen, I understand if you play France or Germany, or Spain, or Portugal, that you might want to go a slightly different route. But I do think there are games in which England probably have a responsibility to be that bit more expansive. Um, and obviously, the whole Saudi stuff with Henderson has, has also added further scrutiny on his inclusion in the side. You know, I, he gave an interview last week, and I'm not sure if we discussed it on here, but, you know, listen, I, I disagree with some of the stuff he said, and I thought, Actually, he was probably better off not doing the interview if he wanted the whole uh, sort of noise around him to die down. Um, I don't think that Jordan Henderson is a homophobe because he went to Saudi Arabia. Um, but I can see why people feel that it goes against the values that he supported so vocally in the past. So, you know, I understand the reaction to it without thinking at the same time that Jordan Henderson is the worst person on earth for taking that deal. That's kind of where I'm at on it on a personal level. But as I say, the interview, I don't think done him any favours. And whilst, you know, 
the reaction to some of his comments was expected. What I will say is if you opened up that interview on the Athletics website to read it and thought that you were going to see anything different in terms of Jordan Henderson, for example, denying the fact that it was just about money, what were you waiting for? How naive are you? He was only ever going to defend his decision and his stance. And he was only ever going to talk about what he believes are the positives of him moving to Saudi Arabia. He wasn't going to sit there and go, guys, I'm so, so sorry. I shouldn't have done this. I did it for the money. Please forgive me. That was never going to happen. So if you expected that, then, you know, I think it's time you uh, readjust your expectations. But yeah, the England debate, um, it comes up every time England play and it will continue to do so because Gareth Southgate at the moment is a very divisive figure. And I always feel sorry for people when they're a divisive figure, but they're not a divisive person. Does that make sense? Somebody like Gareth Southgate seems like such a good guy and he's done so much good for the England image and and the, the, the diversity within the camp and all the rest of that stuff. I think he's been a breath of fresh air in that sense, the way he's handled the media, all of that stuff, which in the past was a problem for England. But, you know, it, it, it's his footballing decisions that I think need questioning. The problem is, is that those decisions, when they're not taken in the right way, then end up leading to personal abuse and questioning of his, you know, own character, which I think is is the unfair part, if that makes sense. But anyway, let's move on. Let's talk Hansi Flick, who's been sacked by Germany less than a year before the Euros. Of course, they were embarrassed with a heavy home defeat by Japan in a friendly just the other night. And that was the final straw for the German FA who pulled the trigger on Hansi Flick yesterday. Um, Kai Havertz has been a big favourite of Hansi Flick's. And I just wonder what this means for his future. Um sort of leading the line for this German side because, you know, Kai Havertz at the moment is is dividing opinion, not for any other reason other than his, his outputs and his performances. And sometimes you find managers that are loyal to players and will stick with them even when they're having a bit of a difficult time. Sometimes you'll find managers at international level that will judge players solely based on what they deliver on the international stage and, and are able to, at times, ignore what they're doing at club level. You know, Kai Havertz is one of those players that needs to needs to improve, you know, needs to improve his productivity if he's going to continue, not just in the Arsenal team, but in the German side as well. And I'm just curious to see whether a new manager coming in, it probably could or it could be Julian Nagelsmann, based on what we're reading at the moment. Will he uh, value Kai Havertz's contribution in the same way that Hansi Flick does? Not sure. And that's why I think this is really, really interesting. Havertz's confidence for me right now is on the floor. And um, although he spoke over the weekend while on international duty and basically said something along the lines of, look, I've been to new clubs before and I've been through these difficult moments before and I'm staying calm. It is playing on his mind, I think. And that's clear to see in his performances and being dealt the blow of maybe being displaced in your national team could be a problem for Kai Havertz. So I hope that that's not the case. Um, I, I can't remember who I read was in temporary charge um, of the game that they've got coming up uh, before, of course, club football returns. Let me, uh, did I, I got a name in my head, but was it the right name? Um, I don't want to say it in case it wasn't. Rudy Voller, that's it. Yeah, Rudy Voller, manager, of course, between 2000 and 2004. He's the one um, taking charge in the interim, but Nagelsmann could be on the agenda for the German FA. Um, you asked me earlier on about Peter Drury, and I'll just answer that question uh, from Django. Um, but if you've got any more questions, start throwing them in the live chat for the last sort of 10 minutes or so of the show. And I'll work my way through as many of those as I possibly can remember. Um, go over as well to the Gunas uh, versus Cancer live podathon. If you search the Gunas pod, on Twitter, you'll find the links there. If you go on the Gunas podcast YouTube channel, uh, you can find um, the stream there. And also there's a website that is currently streaming on as well. People making all sorts of donations. It's brilliant. They've done such a wonderful job. Amazing, amazing guests as well. Um, but yeah, have a look. Do have a look. Okay. Um, let's go back to your questions then here. Let's take this one from... Um, Django, who asked me about speaking to Peter Drury 
earlier on. He says, does Peter Drury support Arsenal? Peter Drury was very tight-lipped on who he supports, as is understandable. Um, and one of the really, really interesting comments, uh, conversations, I beg your pardon, that we have, which was brought up by Tom Canton, I thought it was a really good conversation. When he said he wanted to ask me a question while Peter Drury was on the panel, I was like, mate, are you feeling all right? Have you been drinking this morning or something? Why would you ask me anything about commentary when you've got Peter Drury there? But basically, the question that Tom asked was, because of the fact that I am associated with Arsenal in terms of, I'm clearly an Arsenal fan, a lot of my work centres around Arsenal, do I think that that would be a problem moving forward in the world of commentary? And Peter Drury spoke brilliantly about that. And he said, look, you know, we've all grown up supporting teams. I know who all the big commentators support. They don't always want to share it, et cetera, et cetera. But, it, you know, if you think that people grew up young lads watching football and didn't have a team, then that's kind of way off the mark. So I feel a bit better about that now. But also, um, Mike, very, very kindly, having been sent it by Sophie uh, from the Highbury squad, played out my commentary from the United game uh, in front of Peter Drury, which was amazing. And he, he sort of provided some feedback and talked about the differences between radio and television and all the rest of it, which I thought was uh, brilliant insight and it was great to hear from him so thank you mike for organizing it thank you peter uh, for the kind words and and obviously for listening and uh, and thank you tom as well for bringing up a really good discussion point uh, during that show um remember the gooners pod is live now uh, make sure you jump over there and a big thanks to mike for all his efforts around that okay let's take some more of your questions from the live chat um Junior Gunner says, Harry, I made a comment in the summer saying we should have signed Zoboslai as the left central midfielder instead of Kai, and you disagreed. I just wanted to know if you still felt the same. Um, I might have disagreed. I don't I don't remember um that particular conversation. Did I just just remind me, did I say that I didn't want Zoboslai, or did I say something along the lines of Actually, we're not in for Sabozlai. So what's the point in talking about this? Let's focus on the player that is incoming. And that if Arteta thinks that Havertz can do this role in the way that he wants him to, then I'm kind of on board with that. Um, I've never not rated Dominic Sabozlai. Um, I've always been a fan of his. Did I have questions in my mind of, of how good he would be in the Premier League and if he would be able to make that transition nice and quickly? I probably did have. Um, and I think what he's shown in the early weeks of the season have convinced me that maybe that was wrong. But yeah, um, I, I think Zaboslai is a good player. But th this is the thing that Arsenal fans do, and, and not just yourself. Like, this is not aimed at you in any way, shape or form, just as a general point. You know, we sit there and we obsess over players that we don't have and that we were never interested in, that we were never even in for. When actually what we should be doing is focusing on how, as a football club, we can get the best out of what we have. Talent identification in recent years generally has been very, very good, very, very positive. And as a result of that, I think that Arteta and the likes deserve um, time when it comes to some of their signings, time for us to see how they pan out before we fully judge them. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, Badzi Bourbon says, Bar City, Liverpool and maybe Brighton, it seems like everyone is going to play the same against us. Is this a good or bad thing? Um, well, the more you face something, the more you become accustomed to it and therefore the more you get to know it and the more you get to know something, the easier it should be in theory to find solutions to that particular problem, I would say. Um, does that make sense? So I, I guess for me, if we're going to face a low block week in, week out, or at least most weeks of the season, it's annoying and it's frustrating, but it means that there's no choice but to try and figure out alternative ways of unlocking these types of defensive setups because it's going to be something that we face regularly. And if we're going to pick up the points that we need to compete and challenge, then we're going to have to figure it out. So it kind of gives you um, clarity with regards to what you need to prepare for and what you need to improve on, which I guess can be seen as a good thing. Um, listen, we we make silly mistakes defensively and we have done for a little while now. And those have got to be cut out because we are dominating games. We are controlling football matches. 
we're creating. Maybe not as many clear-cut chances as we were at times last season, but certainly enough to win games. And therefore, we have to be clinical up top. I know this sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but we have to be clinical in front of goal. And we also have to cut out the errors because the, some of the goals we've given up at the start of this season have been really, really poor. And unfortunately, yeah, you can talk about the attackers and the glitz and glamour of playing in the front three and all the rest of it. And, you know, Saka's smashing goals and Martinelli's dynamism up front and Gabriel Jesus's silky, silky skills and all the rest of it. But if you can't defend and do the basics, then you're going to fall short. And and that's, for me, what we need to tighten up on. I'm not too concerned about the low block thing at the moment because I think even when facing it, we're still creating enough chances to win these games. Focus on the finishing. Focus on not switching off defensively because those are the things you can control. Uh, MM says, do you feel because England has the fourth best team in the world, uh, there is pressure to succeed with this generation of this squad? You're talking about the national team. Yeah, I, I think there is, there is, of course, pressure to succeed because of the talent that any England boss has available to him. But although there are areas in which England are really well stocked, so like you think about some of the standout players like Rice, class, Bellingham, class, Kane, as much as it kills me to say it, class, Saka, phenomenal. Um, there are still positions in that team. I think England are weak. And I think as a, a consequence of that, you have you see a manager here who actually rec probably recognises that and doesn't want to expose that. So maybe doesn't want to play such a high line because he doesn't trust Harry Maguire. But then I guess why pick him? Um, you know, maybe he doesn't want to play with inverted fullbacks so much because he doesn't trust the fullbacks to invert. Um, you know, you think about that midfield, Rice, Bellingham for me is brilliant. And I think with those two, you should be able, at least in games against the likes of Ukraine, to play a Foden with them as the third man or a Madison. You know, that player can have defensive responsibility off the ball, but should be given that little bit more license going forward. You can play with two out and out wingers. You can play with Harry Kane up front. But I think Gareth Southgate worries about his back line. He hasn't got a world-class goalkeeper um, in terms of who he's going with anyway in Jordan Pickford. Um, you know, Ramsdale is is better than Pickford, in my opinion, although Ramsdale has a ricket in him once, you know, every now and again as well. So I think Gareth Southgate picks his team based on what, or, or, or decides his setup, determines the way he's going to approach games based on what he believes are the weaknesses of the team. Now, there's two ways of looking at it. There's glass half full, glass half empty. There'll be managers that, they, that think these are our strengths. Let's really try and amplify these elements of our game. And that should bring us success. And there'll be managers that look at it and, and, and worry and maybe panic about what their shortcomings are, what they believe their team's shortcomings to be. And so choose to go down the other road, which the road, which is, how do we mitigate the risk here? And Gareth Southgate is that type of manager. And he's not going to change because that's the way his brain works. And that's not a bad thing. There have been many successful managers over the years who have taken that more pragmatic approach. But I think when you look at the riches that England have in attack, your Sackers, your Fodens, your Rashfords, your Canes, all the rest of it, naturally people are going to say, well, fix it so that we see the best of those players in those roles and if we become a little bit more fragile defensively then so be it but our attacking prowess should outweigh that um this thing about him wasting a generation wasting a golden generation i think is far too reactionary right let's 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 put this bluntly okay and people aren't going to like this, but let, let's be honest about it. Um, Temi says, I think Southgate isn't brave and is wasting a golden generation of top English players. Needs to go or England won't win anything. There are better managers out there than Gareth Southgate. Let's start with that because that for me is fact. Okay. But let me tell you this. England are not a nation that win things. Historically, they've won one tournament ever. One. So to have the mindset of a winning nation is, yeah, you could say good because you want to have that ambition and, and you want to keep improving and all the rest of it. And, you know, I, I get that part. But by that same token, I think it's getting ahead of yourself a little bit as well. Getting to a semi-final of a World Cup, getting to a final of a European Championship, 
yeah, you haven't got over the line and nobody remembers the runners up. But by England's standards, historically, that's really good. And Gareth Southgate shouldn't be judged on standards that Spain have set or that Italy have set or that Germany, Brazil, Argentina have set over the years. He should be judged on the standards that England have set. And in comparison to those standards, he's done pretty well. He has. This idea of a top ge a golden generation, right? Bukayo Saka hasn't even kicked the ball in the Champions League yet. Okay, he's great and he will only get better. But you're not talking about a side of established elite level players. Jude Bellingham is young and has gone to Real Madrid and is now kicking on to a new level. But his best years are still to come. Declan Rice, I think, has been limited in the way he's been allowed to play the game at West Ham and is now developing into a much better player. Phil Foden's still got levels to go up to. James Madison, having gone to Tottenham from Leicester, is going to be better for it. I think that England's level is on the rise. They're, they've not peaked yet for me, this England side. Certain individuals have probably peaked, the likes of Harry Kane, for example. Carl Walker, maybe you could argue, although I still think they're both great. But overall, the core of this squad that I believe Southgate should be building around is yet to peak and still has more to come. So I wouldn't be sitting here going, oh my God, you have to sack him now because if he doesn't win the Euros coming up next year, there's no chance England win anything for another however many years, what, 60 odd years. I wouldn't worry about that at this point because I still think the squad has got levels to go up to. And I think what you've seen under Gareth Southgate, whether people want to admit it or not, is progress. And um, you don't just go from being a nation that never wins anything to winning everything. And that's where fans can be a little bit spoiled sometimes and set, as I say, in my opinion anyway, and this is just my opinion, unrealistic expectations. Okay, guys, uh, we are going to leave it there. Um, thank you so, so much for joining me. As always, hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember, once the stream finishes, pop down to the comments section, leave your questions for our members episode, which is coming out tomorrow. Um, I've got a few in the bank already, um, but yeah, uh, some more questions would be much appreciated. And uh, we're going to spend this week slowly getting our way back into Premier League football ahead of Arsenal's big game at Goodison Park on Sunday, which I can't wait for. Can't wait to see the Arsenal back in action, particularly given uh, the way that Manchester United game ended. Like, subscribe, share. If you're listening on audio, leave us a review as well. And I'll catch you all next time. Until then, have a great evening. Goodbye. You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to 